everybody and welcome back to Office Hours with SVIA Student Union. My name is Emily Gale and today we have Dr. Micah Gell-Redman with us to discuss vaccinations and the collective action problem that ensues. Uh, so thank you Dr. Gell-Redman for joining us today. Um, do you have anything you want to say to get us started? No, other than that, it's uh, great to be here. Nice to meet you, Emily, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk a little bit about these ideas. I'm excited to start the conversation. Good deal. Okay. So my first question for you is, what do you teach and sort of what, what's like your home department in SPIA? Yeah. So I actually have a dual appointment. I My home department in SPIA is International Affairs. And then I also have an appointment over in the College of Public Health in the Department of Health Policy and Management. And so I do teach a class that links those two interests together. Uh, that is nice. called the politics of disease control. Uh, ah, okay. I teach as both an upper division seminar for SPIA students. And then I also teach as a graduate seminar over in public health. Uh, I teach a few other classes that I've enjoyed um, offering to SPIA students. I do teach a version of the um, ethnicity and nationalism class. I uh, have also developed a class called social experiments around the world. That is an introduction to experimental methods, kind of from an IA perspective. I think those are the main classes that I teach. And I um, I enjoy teaching all of those, like equally. I have I no, they are, they are like my children. I love them all equally. There you go. I mean, if you could pick, if you had to pick one, like if you were forced to pick one, mm. what would it be? I, uh, I would probably, if I had to pick one, pick the social experiments class just because it's new. Yeah. And so it was, uh, you know, last semester was the first time I got to teach it. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, and I would like to teach that again and especially like to be able to teach it again um, in a fully in-person setting. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be an interesting, do you do like a simulation sort of deal or do you do um, just like you throw a scenario out and then you just work through the scenarios. So I'm pretty paper focused when I teach. Okay. I, the, the way I approach um, teaching undergraduates is that what I am able to expose you to is professional research. That's what I know how to do and I'm interested in. And that is the craft that I can expose you to. And so I kind of don't want to waste any opportunities to do that. And so every week in that class, uh, students are reading a new peer-reviewed publication that is an example of a field experiment. And so we read through the experiments together. We talk about methodological issues. We talk about um, uh, the connection to policy and uh, ethical issues, all sorts of other things that come up when discussing social experiments. Very cool. Do you have a specific background in research that, um, that you came up through the ranks in order to understand and learn all of these methodology uh, or types of experiments and things like that? Yeah, I mean, so I, I did my PhD at the University of California, San Diego. And while I was there, actually my, uh, my methods training was mostly in the economics department and in the statistics department. And so I just spent a lot of time studying not statistics generally. I'm not a statistician and so very glad to not be one. I admire those people a lot. But instead, I focused on kind of a narrow corner, which is the, um, the corner of applied statistics called causal inference. Uh, 
And that focus led me in a few directions, but one of them was to focus on experiments, survey experiments, field experiments, uh, field experiments implemented online. And so that's been my professional trajectory uh, since I got my PhD is focusing on uh, research designs delivered in that way using experimental methods. Okay. Well, um, where did you get your undergraduate degrees or your, if you have a master's degree, where did you get that? Yeah. Yeah. I have a, my, my trajectory is uh, a little bit non-standard. So I actually started my undergraduate education at the Evergreen State College, which is a small liberal arts school in Washington state. Okay. Um, in uh, Western Washington, just a beautiful part of the country. And I did some work there. I, I actually had a, I have a peer reviewed pub from that time, like when I was, you know, this is like 20 plus years ago uh, at Evergreen, uh, I was working with somebody in the field of comparative literature. So we have a, like a Spanish language publication that's about um, an Argentine author from the early 20th century. And I continued that, I, I went to UCLA and actually got my BA in comparative literature at UCLA. Very cool. And then I spent some time in the workforce and I quickly discovered that I, while I had been really interested in the stuff that I did as an undergraduate, that I didn't develop the skills that I needed to do the kinds of jobs that I wanted to do. And so I went back and got an MPA. Uh, my MPA is from Cornell. And uh, so that was a couple of years that we spent in lovely central New York. Uh, and then I started the PhD uh, just a year or so after that in San Diego. So you played hopscotch from one side of the country to the other and then back. <laughs> Very cool. I mean, I feel like that's really awesome that you got to experience the country like that and at, your, like a, at a young age, because a lot of people don't get that experience. And even though it's only within the confounds of the continental United States, it's in it, its own way a worldly view because you're learning of different cultures from different sides of the country. So sure. that's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. and while that was happening, I, I also, uh, I went to China. I, I did have the chance to do a brief trip to Europe. I did, uh, I, I spent between six months and a year total in um, Mexico and Central America. So yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of bouncing around all over the place during that time for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you are a very, you're in the right department then because of where you've gone, what you've learned. So that's awesome. Um, okay, so what are, what are your, some of like, excuse me, what are some of your general interests and our hobbies? Ooh, hobbies. Can I tell you about my new hobby without, yes. without fear of judgment? Go for it. So Emily, I have taken to doing chess puzzles. Okay, is that like chess, like playing chess or just like, putting together pictures fair, or yeah, puzzles fair of chess. Question. Fair question. So in the chess puzzle, you are presented with an image of a chessboard right. that has the pieces arranged. Okay. And there's some goal that you're trying to achieve with the pieces. So okay. it's a little bit like, do you remember the end of the first Harry Potter book? Mm -hmm. Do you remember how to get through, they have to basically, they, they have to defeat a chess, but they have to defeat an opponent playing chess. Right, yeah. And so 
Yeah, it's pretty so a chess puzzle is pretty similar to that. And I think of myself in the same, you know, I also think of myself <laughs> as a wizard while I'm doing those puzzles. I feel like if anyone who's really good at puzzles doesn't think of themselves as a wizard, they're doing it wrong. So it's true. Now I just want to because I know we want to be factual here. <laughs> I want to set the record straight. I am not really good um, <laughs> at, at all, but I am aspiring to improve. I mean, you said you just started. So if you were really good, then you used a lot of your wizardry to become really good at it really quickly. So no, no, I am not really good. <laughs> I, am, I am enjoying that. And I have, you know, there are all sorts of other stuff. I, other things I do. I have um, two kids my daughter is 10 at the moment. And my son is seven. So we like to play games and make music and hang out and do that a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. Good, good ages, fun ages, and, and quality time, especially when they're all stuck at home. <laughs> yes, that is an exciting part of our current situation indeed, but great for us, works, works well for our home. No complaints yeah. about that. That's awesome. Okay, well, now I'm going to get into more of the um, academia topics of conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so you said that you wanted to talk about vaccination as a collective action problem. So could you expand on that a little sure. bit for us? Yeah, let's try and be uh, systematic about it and, and you'll stop me. Um, you know, that'll make it more fun. We'll kind of do it as a conversation. So uh, this starts with the idea of a, a good. So a good meaning a thing that you consume like this pen that I'm holding, like the notebook that I'm writing with, like the computer that you're using for this conversation. And so in the abstract world of the social sciences, we think about goods as having a couple of properties that define them. And so one is that they are typically exclusive. And what that means is that you, um, may not necessarily be able to get a computer. You may not necessarily be able to get a pen or a notebook. Uh, there can be some barrier to you having those things. And typically in a market economy, that barrier is the price. You have to pay the price in order to get the good. And in that sense, the good is exclusive. And the other thing about goods is that they are typically rival in consumption. And that means that your computer that you use can't be enjoyed by somebody else. Two people can't use that same computer at the same time. What we've just described are classic example of private consumption goods, standard private consumption goods. Now there's this other type of good that stands those uh, concepts on their head, their collective head. And that is the public good or pure public good. And the public good has neither of these properties. It is non-exclusive, meaning that it is not possible to prevent anyone from enjoying it. And it is also non-rival, meaning that one person's enjoyment of it doesn't impede another person from enjoying it. Many students are familiar with this concept and they've seen the idea of a pure public good uh, in courses, you know, maybe with reference to um, knowledge perhaps, or to something like uh, national defense. Mm -hmm. Another example of a pure public good is something that's been in the news a lot lately. And that is the notion of herd immunity. So just quickly, herd immunity refers to this idea that in a given population, if enough people are protected from a disease, then there is a, a way in which those individual protections add up and create a general population-wide protection. Mm -hmm. So the 
each individual uh, could be protected from a disease by, for example, receiving an inoculation. And if uh, enough people are inoculated, there's enough individual level protection that all of a sudden now we have this new thing, herd immunity. And that herd immunity, depending on how it's presented, fits this definition of a pure public good, of being non-exclusive and non-rival. That's all well and good. What's the, what's the problem? What's wrong with that? Well, students who have seen pure public goods, especially in a SPIA class, will likely anticipate that when social scientists talk about pure public goods, they often talk about collective action problems. The collective action problems that are associated with providing and maintaining those pure public goods. And so in this case, uh, this problem of generating the pure public good of herd immunity runs into, may run into, a collective action problem of free riding. Mm. And this is the familiar notion that remember when you, you get invited to like a potluck and it's time for you to go and you think, oh, there's gonna be lots of people there and nobody's gonna check my ID at the door and I can just walk in and if there's lots of food, I can just enjoy that food. And I don't need to bring a dish, right? I can yeah. enjoy the contributions of others. And so there's a similar idea here. I don't need, I as the individual may feel, I don't need to contribute to that public good of uh, herd immunity. I can just enjoy it by benefiting from the actions of others. The reason that I emphasize this view is not because I think it is a totally accurate view of the vaccination problem. Because it's a model, by definition, it's not perfectly accurate. No model is. All models simplify or stylize away. Right. But I think it's worth taking the collective action view of vaccination and, and viewing non-adherence to vaccination as a, as a free rider problem because it contrasts with another view that I think is more common. And that is the view that those who choose not to vaccinate are somehow deficient. They're either uneducated, uh, untrusting, mm -hmm. uh, uh, selfish. There are lots of different, and, and in fact, those are some of the most generous ways of describing uh, people who choose not to vaccinate. There are many more uh, pejorative views that people take. For sure. So I, I propose this approach because I just want to really emphasize you could arrive at the problem of unwillingness to adhere to a vaccination campaign, even if you didn't have misinformation, confusion, lack of education, people who could be described as, as marginal. You can get to a problem of non-adherence simply because people prefer to free ride. In fact, there's a good bit of evidence historically from the United States that suggests that this might be a pretty reasonable model because Emily, if you think back again to this, oh, we've got public goods, collective action problems, free riding, what's the solution to a free riding problem or oh, the imposition of some kind of fine or penalty? Mm -hmm. That's the classic solution. You can't free ride. If you come to the potluck without food, we're gonna charge you five bucks. Yeah. In the early days in the United States, monetary fines of exactly that kind were imposed. 
on individuals who uh, refuse to adhere to, for example, smallpox uh, vaccination protocols. Now, those monetary fines shifted into other methods of uh, inducing compulsory vaccination, like, for example, uh, requiring vaccination for enrollment in school. Mm-hmm. But the basic underlying idea is still there, that this is essentially, at least from one angle, a free riding problem, which then poses lots of implications for uh, how we might expect uh, a campaign like the COVID vaccination campaign to develop over the coming months and years. Yeah, I, that was that helps me follow up to, or to my next question. So. In your opinion, how has politics shaped people's reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic and by association, the vaccine? Yeah. That's a, what's a productive way to approach this? Um, <laughs> I think the right way to think about this for me, or at least one productive way to think about this is to ask, rather than asking how politics has influenced views of the vaccine is to think about the concept of partisanship. And in other words, to think of ourselves as being inherently, at least in some settings, partisan beings. So this is the idea that we have certain inherent views of um, policy preferences, ideas about what we think are good policies, is mm-hmm. part of it. But there's something that's kind of in, potentially independent of and much more important than that. And that is we have certain inherent ideas about who reliable spokespeople are. And if you want to just like pare it down and make it real simple, it's like you have ideas who's on my team. Yeah. What's the type of spokesperson? What's the type of information source that I am open to? And so I do think that, that that partisanship in that sense, we both uh, people in the United States and people around the world being, uh, having a partisan streak, if you will, mm-hmm. makes it so that we have certain preconceived notions of whom we should listen to. And uh, I think that uh, that dynamic has just been really prominent mm-hmm. uh, over the past year. Absolutely. And I think that it will continue to be a sort of fundamental part of how people make choices about the vaccine. I agree. Do you think that there's anything uh, that organizationally or through the budget that government agencies could do to address um, the partisanship aspect of it and also the collective action problem aspect of it. Yeah, the partisanship I'll skip because if I had an answer to, that's basically like saying you have an answer to polarization. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Um, So thanks for just conceding. (laughs) Um, But I I would like to talk about your, what you say, what you ask about um, uh, the organizational problem. So the historical argument that I read it is that the one of the principal barriers in the United States to effective nationwide vaccination campaigns of the kind that are currently underway, mm-hmm. is that actually uh, the, the big barrier is federalism. 
And so specifically, the idea is the empowerment of states, the institutional development of states, and the institutional diversity of states is effectively acts as a barrier to like having a unified national strategy. Now, that's a very tricky question. I would describe that as something that social scientists would call a fundamentally identified, oh, pardon me, a fundamentally unidentified question. What I mean by that is I'd be very hard pressed to prove to you that that's the case. But um, in talking with folks who approach this from many different angles, so this includes folks who are in the military, folks who are at uh, the highest levels of the presidential administration, folks who are foot soldiers in uh, state level departments of public health and even county departments of public health. Um, the impression that I get is that uh, there is quite a, an element of complexity that is introduced by the strong federalism that is uh, present in the US. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, and I think that a lot of people don't think about it that way. And then some, there's a lot of people that do think about it that way. Um, and it's just a matter of like getting people on the same page or addressing it from both, both angles without stepping on any toes, but also being very blunt and open to talking about the situation and the solution to the problem. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, that is all the time we have today. Um, I know 15 minutes, 20 minutes, however long we've been talking, this goes by super fast. So um, thank you, Dr. Galredman, for joining us today. Uh, and if you would like to talk about something else um, or just Get to know students and ask me questions about what students want to hear it you're welcome back here always so thank you thank you thanks everybody Have a good day.